This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we get to hang out with two musicians, an indie pop singer from Canada and a composer of art music from Ghana by way of St. Louis. And two artists, one who explores what it means to be human and the other who employs art to illuminate science. Both of the visual artists will be showing their work as part of next month's True False Film Fest and both musicians will be visiting Columbia, one for True False and the other next week. So which one is which? Well, if you're cosily snuggled up, we'll begin. And as it's so cold outside, let's start in Canada. I have had a love affair with pop music my whole life, especially pop music with female vocals and that comes with a side of glitter and sparkle. So when I was glancing through the list of musicians who are coming to the upcoming True False Film Fest, one artist in particular stood out to me, Begonia. Begonia is from Winnipeg, Canada, not Winnipeg, Missouri, has been cited by multiple media outlets as having one of Canada's most extraordinary voices and has had two number one songs on Canada's CBC National Radio chart. Back in 2017, she was named by National Public Radio as one of the 10 Canadian artists people should know. And that was right after the release of her debut EP, Lady in Mind, which she followed up in 2019 with her debut album, entitled Fear. And just as Begonia was getting ready to take her fear tour on the road, right after selling out five consecutive shows in her hometown, COVID came along and everything changed. But her appearance in Columbia at the True False Film Fest on Saturday, March the 5th, will be at the start of an 18-gig tour around the United States, including a stop at the South by Southwest Festival. And so I am super fangirl excited that we get Begonia all to ourselves for the next 15 minutes. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Begonia. Oh, thank you so much for that lovely intro. Winnipeg, Missouri. Is that what you said? Yeah, there is a Winnipeg, Missouri. Little tiny village. Well, we have a Miami, Manitoba as well, so people get it confused <laughs> sometimes. So it's late 2019. You spent a couple of years working on your debut album, and there it is out in the world. It's getting airplay and award nominations, and it's topping charts. You're about <laughs> to go off to Europe, and suddenly it's March 2020, and like everyone Ooh. else, you are locked down. So how was that time for you artistically and emotionally? Wow. Yeah, you there it is. That's the that's what happened. It, <laughs> it was it was interesting. I feel like well, we were in New York when my manager called and said, hey, we were on our way to New York to meet some of my team there because we were going to play a festival and they were going to meet us there It was going to be this fun thing. And we were an hour out and he was like, hey, how close are you? And I was like, what? What? Why? And it felt already kind of eerie. It was around March. 12th or 11th when mm. things were really starting to change in the news like in how people were talking about it and stuff and we still didn't really know what was going on and then he was like okay well most of your tour is canceled now but come to new york we'll figure it out we'll see if you'll play this festival 
we get to New York, we talk for the evening and then the news is on and it just, everything just feels so surreal. And we decided not to play the festival and just turn around and go back to Canada. But every truck stop we stopped on the way home was like dark truck stops, like the lights flickering. And then the attendant being like, you want some toilet paper? <laughs> like it just felt so like, ah, what's going on? And we're driving down the highway. And I know this is completely unrelated, but there was like a car engulfed in flames, like as we're driving down the highway. And I was like, wow, like it was just so many strange omens, like just weird things across the border, got home. And I thought maybe as many people thought that I was only going to be out for maybe a couple months, but then things just started rolling over. And rather than things being postponed, things just started getting outright canceled. And then I had to come to terms with the fact that for the first time in 10 plus years, I wasn't leaving my house for a while. And that that was the odd part is that I'd been touring so consistently for my whole adult life. So it was odd to kind of, I don't know, see the seasons change, be in my home where I had really created a routine because every time I would create one, I would be gone and it would just switch everything up. And that was the life that I was very used to. So this was a large shift. And I feel like Many people could probably relate to this that I didn't necessarily know how tired I was and how much of a hamster wheel I was on pre-COVID shutdowns. And then during the shutdowns, I think my body was like short circuiting because it was like, what do we do if we're not doing mm. anything? And I saw all the memes and, and things that were going around where it's like, now this is the time where artists rise up and make their best work. And I was like, mm. Must be nice. But. <laughs> so was it a muse for you? I was depressed. I was depressed. Like, it was dark. It got to places. At first, I was, like, on the phone with my manager once a week, checking in, being like, I'm still here, man. I'm ready to go. Whenever we're going again, oh, I'll be there. And then, like, months passed, and I was like, I'm not here anymore. I just really lost kind of a vision of my future in a way and so all those memes going around of people being like yeah Shakespeare wrote meow 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 during the Spanish meow meow I was like <laughs> no that's cool like cool for Shakespeare but like not me like I'm not sitting here being like wow writing songs it took me a long time and then and then I started kind of <laughs> sitting in that solitude and just thinking like what's next and I started writing music like over zoom with collaborators like it was a learning curve to figure out how because collaboration is such a huge part of my creative life mm. it was such a learning curve to figure out how to be collaborative and it to feel satisfying when I was stuck at home and so I figured out ways to do things over zoom or to or pass ideas back and forth and then that became the beginning of a new series of songs that are going to come out soon. But it didn't necessarily feel like, oh, wow, the music struck me. It kind of felt like I was walking through sand a lot of the time. But now upon reflection, I'm like, I'm glad that I took that time to take care of myself and really to stop everything and live through that depression period. And I feel like I've, I've not fully come out the other side. I feel like I've evolved. I feel like I've changed. And I feel like now today I am in a decent headspace. I'm in a good place. I'm starting to think about putting out more music, doing the visual collaborative parts, going on a tour, like all these things that I have really missed and that it sparks 
such major parts of who I am, like to do those things. So now I'm starting to do that again. And it's easier for me to feel a bit more like myself and to be a bit more positive. But I'm a day by day person right now. And today I feel okay. (laughs) Are you excited to be going back on tour? Are you a little trepidatious about being in a crowded room with all of these people after so much time by yourself? (laughs) I've been a little bit of both. Like I always said, when people started rescheduling tours and stuff earlier that I was like, oh, I'm not the trailblazer here. Like, I'm going to wait and see how people feel. I don't need to be the first out there. But now this tour presented itself and I was like, okay, I was on the fence for a while being like, okay, am I going to do this? Am I really going to do this? And then I I found a crew of dudes like my live band that's going to come with me. And and I just feel like we're going to do it in the safest way that we can. And I feel like I'm in a good enough headspace at this point to take on a challenge and to try, but also not to just be reckless, I guess. Like, I'm not going to go out there and start, like, open mouth kissing, like, every person (laughs) in the crowd. So heads up, come on, Bea. Because that's usually what I do. (laughs) No, I mean, there's a mixture of both, but there is definitely a level of high excitement, but also a level of keeping my expectations close to the ground because if I've learned anything in the last two years, it's that anything can happen at any point. Like we could get five meters away from the border and then an alien landing could take place. And like, (laughs) like, I just feel like I'm ready for anything at this point. I think it's ironic that the album you brought out in 2019 is called Fear. Yeah. Uh, And then we were all living the fear of which you spoke. I'm kind of amazed that song didn't become a soundtrack for the last two years. How did this not become a global hit? Well, I'm just not globally famous. (laughs) And that's okay with me. I think that there's so many different levels of what it means to be successful. And I feel good about where I'm at I would love to go on this tour and for people to show up to the shows like that would be sweet because I haven't really toured the U.S. that much in my career as Begonia in previous bands I've I've toured quite a bit but not with this project and I don't know what to expect who's gonna be there (laughs) so you released two new singles recently one is called heaven and more recently another one called it's too quiet and i was going to ask you about it's too quiet until i watched the video for heaven (laughs) and it had fluffy chickens and a donkeys in it so so let's talk about heaven what's the song about and tell me about the video yeah i mean heaven is a song that i started writing pre-pandemic but then only finished in the midst of it all. And it became a song about something different. Again, like I've been on tour so much in my adult life. I feel like that also allowed me to run away from many problems (laughs) in my mind or many, many thoughts of working through certain things. I grew up quite religious and grew up quite entrenched in a community of people that believed very specific things. And I believed very specific things and thought that I was right about many of those specific things for much of my my young life. And then I started to grow up and see the world and, and I changed my mind. And I don't feel the same way I used to anymore about heaven and hell and kind of the binary ways of thinking about many things. And I feel like that's something that maybe I didn't necessarily sit down and entirely work through. I just was going through it, but didn't necessarily process all of those changes and how huge that can be when you fundamentally 
think that you know yourself and then everything, not everything, but a lot of things that you think change. And I feel like heaven, the song is just a reflection on that, where I feel maybe that I've more, I mean, if I had to qualify where I'm at now, I probably have a more agnostic approach to life where I still believe in in things, but I can't tell you that I know everything that's going on. And especially in the last two years, man, I've had so much time just sitting on my front porch, staring into the abyss of life, just thinking about, thinking about where, where I'm at and and what I want and how I feel. And I still don't have the conclusions, but I mean, that's, this song is just kind of a rumination on just like curiosity. And I mean, it's not really offering that much lyrically it's not like i'm going into all of those things but it represents it represents all this for me but i didn't necessarily want to like break it all down in like a really clinical preachy way i just had that thought like if i get to if if heaven if all this time something i believe before actually does exist and then i get there what happens it's just a question a curiosity and uh, evolution of my thought and then the video we filmed it on the same property that I wrote the song. There's like an artist retreat home on this farm property in rural Manitoba. And so we filmed the video on that same property where the song was written. And I just felt like it felt significant to me. And also there's a lot of Mennonites. I grew up Mennonite and there's a lot of Mennonites that live around there. And it just felt like kind of the significant thing of me, like trotting around and like, uh, <laughs> a, ro- a see-through <laughs> robe and like someone from a house nearby was like it looks like you're naked and I was like yeah like on the in the prairies like amongst the Mennonites it just felt like significant and I mean there's a lot of non-Mennonites that live there too but it just felt like a it, it just felt like an interesting place to film the video and then all of these farm animals came out of the mix that the director was really attracted to and the director, Gwen Tretno, really evolved the idea that I had. I just had the idea of being out there, being in the back of a truck. And she's like, okay, but what if the truck is your bedroom and it's your dreamscape? <laughs> and then there's a donkey with a crown on and the crown falls off and there's chickens on clouds. And I was like, yeah. Best music video I've seen this year, easily. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, let's go out with a little music. This is Heaven by Begonia.
Begoni will be in Colombia on March the 5th as part of this year's True False Film Fest and will be performing as part of the Rose Showcase. Tickets for which are available whether or not you have a True False Pass. You can also check out Begonia's website at hellobegonia.com and she also has an extensive catalogue of her work on SoundCloud and on Spotify. Begonia, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and I cannot wait to see you on March the 5th. Thank you. Please come say hi. I want to start our next art visit with a piece of audio by artist and spoken word poet Askia Belal. The clock turns and I feel it, a wheel that none can turn back, a firm fact so intact one must learn to work around it. Fate waits for me to do my part, dig deep, leave no stone unturned, no holds barred, a whole soul as far as I'm concerned gets what it is earned in earnest. The harvest. Fate turns its face to and fro like Janus. So work from the center out. Your inner citadel. Help get through winter spells, summer drought. At some point, spring or fall come for all. Learn or unlearn. These ruminations are not props for the ego. No alter egos, neither worshiping at the altar of the ego. No stone unturned. The unknown. Some's learned. And most is not. Clock turns and I hear it. It says, let the sincere search of yourself begin. Askia is a visual artist whose work has been on display at Sago Reeves Gallery and at Or Street Studios, where he is one of the current artists in residence. During the True False Film Fest and then continuing on through April the 10th, his works will be on display at the Uprise Bakery Gallery on Hit Street. He works in acrylic and a variety of dry media like chalk and pastel, sometimes reusing his own paintings and drawings as collage components for other works. Like his spoken word poetry, his works are deeply philosophical, exploring the expanse of historical time and our own smallness within it. He draws from poetry, mythology and philosophy to create works that have layers of narrative. But at the heart of it all is the question... What does it mean to be human? Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Askia. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Diana. It's a pleasure. Thanks for letting me share your studio musings, spoken word poetry. You refer to the part that fate is waiting for you to do. Tell me about that. Sure. So this, this project is a collaboration between my brother and me. He runs a video production business called A Piece of You Video Productions. So in that work... Some of the themes that I'm really concerned with are fate and the interplay between fate and free will, these age-old problems that all of humanity is dealing with. Um, and so in that poetry, in that piece there, I was trying to find a way to, to explain poetically what I'm doing visually. And so it's just a constant question, you know, where, where do we fit in? Where's our space? How do we negotiate this space between the fact that there's so many variables that are beyond our control and at the same time, find a place for art to be able to uh, make our own mark and to make our own choices and to make what we will of, out of our lives. So it's really kind of an exploration or a meditation on that. Does art give you a sense of control? Yes, in a sense. Uh, in a sense, it does. Um, art for me is more about a way of processing the world. It is just a natural vehicle for me to understand the things that are happening around me and within me. 
And there are a lot of things that when you are making art that are under your control. And to be perfectly honest with you, I don't feel that there are a lot of things that are not in your control. There are a lot of things that what we might consider to be happy accidents, um, the unconscious. And for me, my art is a lot about exploring the, the boundary between the conscious and the unconscious, where I'm kind of on autopilot and things are falling together and I'm pulling from a place that is me, but it's also kind of a little bit beyond myself. And then trying to then take my conscious self and understand some of those decisions. And so, again, it's kind of this interplay between those two spaces. So, uh, yes, control and not. (laughs) That leads into my next question, which is talking about the layers that you have in your work. You have these intangible layers of ideas of the past and the present, the known and the mysterious. And then you have these physical layers of paint and collage that you lay down and then you excavate into when you start a work, how much do you know about the end result? How much is conscious and unconscious? And how do you know when it's time to stop? In starting a work, I usually begin a work with a conceptual framework in place that, that I really like it's rules. You know, so, for example, with the body of work that I'm displaying in that video, it's like a lot of the Wheel of Fortune. I know that there's this theme revolving around fate and free will that I'm trying to address and it's going to involve kind of a wheel. Now, as I'm working on those pieces, I allow for myself to leave room to explore. I don't do a lot of preparatory sketches in making these works now. Um, I have the conceptual framework in mind, but I allow myself to explore the ideas in real time because that's very much a part of my method of making to help me build up layers. And in terms of knowing when something is done, it's intuitive. It's really a gut feeling. And I'm sorry to kind of, I don't mean to do a cop out, but it really, you know, I know that people would want more, but it really is a sense of when all of the elements are coalescing in a way and you just feel that this is done. And sometimes you don't realize that. Sometimes you have to put a piece away for some time and then you come back to it and you say, oh, that actually is done. So it really is kind of an organic, kind of an intuitive process for me to feel my way through that. I wonder to what extent does making art give you catharsis or are you looking for answers in your art? It's both really, Diana. Um, you know, as my brother and I were talking about this recently, and he's actually made this point like really directly. And it's something I know as well. But he's saying your art is like therapy for you. Mm. Um, and he's right. You know, it is cathartic and it's therapeutic. As I said, it's like a natural language for me. It's a way I understand it very naturally. And it's a very natural way for me to express things. And so it is therapy. It is a way for me first to kind of work through emotions, feelings, what's happening in the world and my reaction to those things and ideas that I'm trying to grapple with, whether I'm reading them or in any other form. And so, yes, it is very much therapeutic and it is um, very much for me first to just uh, find a sense of balance and peace with myself. And then beyond that, to be able to share that journey with other people as appropriate. You have several bodies of work. You have a body of still life paintings, works that explore the cyclical nature of fortune, the wheel series, and how we are all either on the way up or on the way down over and over again in life. And then you have a series called Non-Portraits, which are what will be on display during True, False and Beyond. Tell me the origin story of the Non-Portraits. Sure. So the non-portraits, I've been working on those for about a year and a half. I started those in the summer, I think July, June or July of 2020. And I had just finished working on a really large abstract piece that I was very excited about that involved a lot of collage. 
And I wanted to continue with that method of making, but I had to also deal with other, other layers uh, of myself. If you recall, that was the summer that we, that we saw a lot of protests revolving around the murder of George Floyd. And so uh, on a collective level, I was tapping into that unconsciously. And at the same time, thinking about my own experience of the world. And so I was trying to come to terms with that. And also um, this problem of a paradoxical problem that I have, and that is how do I make a portrait, but at the same time avoid making a portrait as a kind of a, a problem that I've been dealing with in trying to get around the figure, but at the same time engage the figure and also deal with a more abstract language. And so I was able to find this little space in between, and that is where the non-portraits came from. Why? Tell me about that paradox. Why do you want to paint a non-portrait? It's a good question. There's a lot of reasons. For one, it is an experience that a lot of people have to be and not be at the same time, to be invisible and hyper-visible at the same moment. It's a paradox of existence that... You are born into, like, take me as a black American, a black man. There are many instances where I feel this duality, this simultaneously being seen, really seen, really, really uh, acutely seen. And at the same time, people are not aware of who you are in the slightest bit. And so I think that on one level, that's where they come from. On another level, they're about the human experience of being visible and invisible at the same time, because this is a collective experience. We are beings that are both conscious beings. And so we have this whole external thing going on, but we also have this internal world that nobody ever actually really sees. People have little windows to it in certain forms, but people never actually really see you, right? You live your whole life with a spouse and you don't have access really to that person's thoughts. And so in that sense, it is like, it's a really a paradoxical thing that I think about. And there are other layers that go beyond that. These parts of being a human that straddle that space right there known and unknown, being, uh, as, as being alive where you come from an unknown place before we were born and then we pass back into a place that's unknown in death. And so that in-betweenness for me is just really an intriguing space. Some artists are very clear about the message they want their work to impart to a viewer and others are simply happy that their work has evoked any emotion in a viewer and that they've stopped to look. Where are you on that spectrum? I think I tend more towards ambiguity because I think that for me, art is something that is, it's a language that um, doesn't necessarily translate always so well into, into words and it does things as you, as you make it and release it into the world. Uh, it takes on all these different forms. And for me, what I'm interested in is people having to deal with that. And it makes people uncomfortable. But I think that it's good to be uncomfortable because there's growth that will happen in that space. You know, it's, it's really nice and convenient that everything fits into a nice little box. And, oh, yeah, I understand that. And, you know, you can kind of consume. You go to a museum and you consume 10,000 years of art history while you're drinking your coffee. But things are, to me, much more complex than that. And I think that a, a lot of the things that we're dealing with in the world today is that everything is so, is so fast, you know. And, and for me, to make a painting and, and take a year to make a painting and work on it slow, I'd like for people to have to kind of deliberate and kind of grapple with that and see what kind of internal dialogue that creates or a dialogue it creates with another person. So I kind of want to straddle that space again between letting people have clues about what it's about but allowing them to explore it on their own as well. 
Another area where artists have an ambiguous response or feeling is about titling of their work. Some people really hate having to put words to their work. They are visual artists for a reason. Others like to guide their viewers to their own intent by titling things in a specific way. And I see in your titles a love of words. Your poet comes through. You have works titled Portrait of a Pauper Who Rose, Cyclops Teeth Pyramid Scheme, Our Beautiful Skin Rags Fell Into Infinity. What's your philosophy on titles? Yeah, like you said, I I, I really appreciate words. Uh, I like to write. I grew up listening to a lot of hip hop from the influence of my older brother. So I spent a lot of time engaging with writing. And so I like to think of the the writing as just like an entry point that can give people clues into what the work might be about. But I like for them to also be kind of evocative, you know, so they are not usually, they're direct in a way, but they're also indirect. So again, kind of leaving breadcrumbs or clues for people and to inspire a type of awe or a type of mystery, but at the same time, give people a kind of an access point. Well, Askir Balal's non-portrait series will be on display at the Uprise Bakery Gallery on Hit Street from February the 27th through April the 10th. And his work can also be seen, I believe, in Ali A for the duration of the True False Film Fest from March 3rd through 6th. You can also see his work on his website at askirbilal.art and also visit his studio at at Or Street Studios. Askia, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. Thank you, Diana, for the chance to chat a little bit. It's been a real pleasure. Each year, the True False Film Fest team come up with themes for the fest's art installations and exhibits. Themes like foresight, stranger host, magic realism, and this year, in slash visible villages. And I always have a chuckle at the list of prompts to artists as they seem like a shopping list of obscurity. This year, for example, the prompts talk about triple consciousness, the performances of acts of provocation, imaginary friends, quantum entanglement and enochlophobia. And yes, I had to look it up. It's a fear of crowds. And I always think, how are all these esoteric concepts helpful to an artist? But one artist who has made her way through the entanglement of phrases for the past five years and created an art installation for successive fests is my next guest, artist and geologist Carrie Elliott. For the last 19 years, Carrie has worked for the United States Geological Survey and spends her days mapping the bottom of the Missouri River. She has long been fascinated by the intersection of art and science, taking courses in college in drawing, field illustration and printmaking alongside her geology and natural history major. And since 2017, she has employed her knowledge of art to communicate the science of the natural world to true-false visitors. This year, her installation is called Como C, and I am so happy to have Carrie on the show this evening. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Carrie. Thank you. So I have to ask you, do you sometimes read the art installation prompts and think, what? Definitely. This year, I (laughs) almost didn't submit. My idea came to me the day before the deadline. (laughs) Well, I mean, thankfully, each year you do wade through all those somewhat impenetrable and abstruse terms. And you come up with an art installation that is thought provoking and speaks to a scientific fact. So tell us a little bit about your past works in the fest before we get to this year's and what knowledge you hope people take away. Well, in the past, my first installation was about minerals. So the theme that year was elemental and 
I designed large lanterns that were um, minerals that were suspended in Alley A. And that was that was a really fun, that was a construction challenge, and that was a really fun installation. I later went back to Alley A with an invasive species-based installation that were flying carp. The carp actually made it back to Stevens Lake last year. I really mostly played around with paper mache. There was one year I... I did an installation that was completely different that was based on weather and radar maps that I believe the theme was um, weather slash weather. And I was inspired by radar maps, you know, the colored maps you see um, on, our, on our screens, on our phones. But most years I've made paper mache lit up. I really like making things that are outdoors that are lit up and kind of bright and colorful. Today, especially at European science festivals, there's so often an arts component that people just expect it to be there. Plus, there are loads of festivals which are dedicated to that juncture of arts and science. But it is a fairly recent development in the newish realm of science communication. Tell me about your fascination with that intersection of art and science and where that started for you. It really started back when I first took... um, geology classes, sketching in the field was very important. This was before we had smartphones. It was back in the mid to late 90s. And your field notebook was really important. And you you took notes in the field and sketched the outcrop or sketched the fossils that you saw. And that was actually part of your class. Now, I think people take more pictures and might take notes on the photos. You know, smartphones have really changed everything. But field drawing was was a big thing that I... I enjoyed, and I I took more and more drawing classes. I wanted to double major in college, but geology is a time-consuming major, and so is studio art. So I kind of I kept it as just something I took on the side. But some of the drawings that actually ended up being the inspiration for this installation, I did in college back in the late 90s in a paleontology <laughs> class where I was drawing fossils. So I actually had some of those and I pulled them up for this for this installation. Well, let's get to this year's installation, Como C, which you, you said you came up with the day before the deadline. Tell me a little bit about the background and how you came up with this project. I believe it might have been biking on the Katy Trail. My son is 12 and he's sort of grown up watching me make installations for True False. And he was disappointed that I hadn't thought of anything yet this year. And a lot of the rocks along the trail have crinoids in them, which they look like Cheerios when you see them. They're the stems of the crinoids. A lot of our fossils around here are broken pieces. But what lived in mid-Missouri in the past, and 350 million years ago past, was a uh, sort of a, a tropical sea full of sea creatures. And there were crinoids and trilobites and brachiopods and all these creatures that that really formed, I, it just hit me that that was a village mm-hmm. that lived here long before we did. And it's it's invisible today, but there, there are clues for it in the rocks. Even some of the buildings on campus are cut from the rocks that have fossils in them. So I had that idea about the Como Sea, the invisible village, and just went went from there. So this is a large-scale diorama, and you have a creative team working with you to help you construct everything, but they don't necessarily have the same scientific knowledge that you do. So how do you both let your team have creative freedom, but also make sure that you know all the trilobites are scientifically correct and haven't been loosely interpreted by creative people who think a bit of pink glitter would look really fab? <laughs> 
Well, I've been really lucky through the years. I've had a fairly consistent team of just wonderful it's it's all women who are just great friends and we've had a great time and they're great. They're they're solid artists and many of them are scientists. Um, I will say that there is some creative interpretation, so I do like to give people I don't have very strict guidelines about it must look like this. The lucky thing about about fossils is we have some information about how they looked, but we don't know what their soft parts look like and we don't know what colors they were really. So there's a quite a bit of artistic license we were able to run with. And I will say with the installation, part of the fun is seeing how how people come together and create different pieces and it it cohesively ends up ends up working out okay. I I did a an installation in 2020, right right before um, things closed down with the Foresight theme where I, I did animal eyeballs. And we looked at a lot of pictures of animal eyeballs, but I really let my team go for it in terms of painting the eyes. And it was it was really wonderful to see to see how it all came together in a cohesive project, but so many people had taken, you know, five or six people had taken different different artistic abilities and talents and made made each eyeball their own. So I, I do trust my team quite a bit. <laughs> and that, that's just part of how, you know, the scale of this installation, I work full time, I could never do this alone. So having a team lets me do something at a bigger scale um, and also have sort of a, a fun social experience. So no pink glitter. No pink glitter. I did have some, <laughs> some. I had some rules about color and structure, but and I did most of the sculpting of the creatures. Um, everything is made. The base of ever almost everything in the installation is from recycled plastic. So part of the fun is a lot of. Um, I kind of crowdsourced with a lot of friends to bring me your clear recycling. So all winter, people have been dropping uh, bags of clear recycling on my porch, and we've been sorting it, cutting it up, taping it back together, and then covering it in paper mache. So part of the fun is looking and saying, oh, that's an old Gatorade bottle in there. You won't really be able to recognize it unless you kind of hunt for it, because things are really transformed. But it's almost 100% recycled plastic at the base. What happens to it after the fest? So True False does have the lab where they store some things, but I'm lucky enough to have a fairly large basement. So I've stored everything I've created in my basement. Uh, we'll see. These pieces are rather large, so we'll see where they end up after the fest. I know from talking to other installation artists that sometimes what you expect an installation work to do or how it interacts with its environment can be end up being different than what you expect at the outset. Have there been any interesting twists, turns or surprises in the creation of this work? I don't know. That's kind of hard to think about. I guess you haven't really installed it yet, have no, you? No. I'm really excited to see people's reaction to it. It's very different than anything I've done in the past. I feel like it's large it's um it's playful it's i kind of made the size so that it, an adult may look at some parts of it eye level but but a lot of kids will be sort of in it, it builds from the ground up they're sort of coral reef structures so it'll it'll just be fun to watch people interact with it is there an interactive component like can you walk into it and touch it or is it a stand around it and look at it but don't touch it could be touched for sure Um, everything is sealed in a marine sealant so it's waterproof all my installations have been rained on and (laughs) so so it's pretty weather hardy 
you can't stand so so my constraint is everything's built in my basement and it has to make it out a door so it's sort of long and skinny and tall and we'll be sort of delicately pushing things in to get it out the door are you allowed to include any interpretive signage with your work or does it need to do all its explaining artistically I think we're still deciding that for this year. Um, the the fest has asked me if I wanted to in, include that, and I, I need to put some thought into that. Right now, I'm just uh, really focused on getting the the pieces done. But I, there is an educational component to this piece for sure because it is an illustration of of what happened in the past. So I think that there is a, definitely a a lesson to learn about science and geology from this project. Where will the work be located? It will be at the street closure on 9th Street in front of the Missouri Theatre. So, I mean, you spend your working life exploring a terrain that most of us will never see, nor even really think about. What other stories are down there in the Big Muddy that you would like to tell through art? One of the one of the things about the Big Muddy that has been so exciting to me is that it moves. So the water moves, of course, but the sand on the bottom is actually moving and migrating. And I've made some video based on data, and I'd, I'd like to do more of it, of showing the actual movement of the sand on the bed of the river. Uh, because I don't think people think about how if you were to take all the water out of the Missouri River, it looks a lot like the Sahara Desert with giant sand dunes and huh. and they're moving. And it's it's fascinating down there. Yeah. Well, let's hope that True Falls comes up with a theme that will allow for <laughs> an exploration of the, the bottom of the Missouri River. Carrie Elliott's work can be seen during True Falls weekend at the Sculpture Yard on 9th Street, which will be in front of the Missouri Theatre. You can also check out Carrie's permanent display at Cooper's Landing, which explores what is on the bottom of the Missouri River. Carrie, thank you so much for taking us to one of my favourite places, the intersection of art and science, and uh, for making time to chat this evening. Thank you. It has been really fun to talk about science and art and I'll see you at the festival. My eyes have been opened over the past couple of years to the amount of classical or art music that has long been written not by white Western European men but by women and BIPOC composers. There is a long history of non-white composers creating works in a Western classical music style like the 18th century Chevalier de Saint-Georges in Paris and Ignatius Sancho in London. And in the early 20th century, the English composer Samuel Coleridge Taylor and many composers in the American 20th century like Florence Price and William Grant Still. But all of these composers base their compositions within the rhythmic structure of Western music. And the world of art music gets a whole lot more exciting once you start to expand your ear and realise that there is a world of African art music out there which employs a multitude of different rhythms and harmonies that have their roots in dance, drum communication, and tonal African languages. And one of the most prolific and globally famous contemporary composers of African art music just happens to live in St. Louis and will be coming to Columbia next week to work with the University of Missouri's School of Music and the Mizzou New Music Ensemble. Plus, as the founder and director of the Intercultural Music Initiative, he is in charge of a major concert of work by BIPOC composers being performed at Maryville University in St. Louis this Sunday. So I am delighted to welcome 
welcome back to the show, my good friend, Fred Onoveraswalki, known more familiarly as Freddo. Freddo, what a delight to have you back on the show. Oh, likewise, thanks for having me again and again. <laughs> Any time. Now, you grew up a musical prodigy in Ghana and Nigeria at a time when, regrettably, both countries were still ruled from London. So that meant you received a British-style schooling, singing Handel cantatas in choirs, and then playing piano at evangelical roadshows. But all around you, you were <laughs> in this totally different and diverse rhythms of West Africa. So tell me about your aha moment as a composer when you realized that your compositions were going to embrace the rhythms of Africa? Well, as you rightly pointed out, from age seven, you know, in a boy choir tradition in Ghana, from age seven all the way to, oh, age 14, I think eventually that's when my voice broke, you know. It was mostly boy choir tradition, or the only male soprano in most cases. But as you pointed out, most of the repertoire was, you know, Baroque, Renaissance, you know, Thomas Tallis, Orlando Gibbons, you know, Palestrina, William Byrd, that kind of stuff, you know. And then later, of course, uh, Bach, Handel, and uh, other Baroque composers. The turn or the switch for me to research African element, music element, came in my late teenage years, you know. But it's so, it's so ironic because when you, that was the time that most, about the age that most teenagers, you know, want to do bad. But uh, that was the time I chose to do research. And uh, my first trip of research, you know, began in Mauritania, Senegal, Gambia, Mali. I mean, for two weeks, you know, I crisscrossed about 13 different countries, you know, in the West African bloc. That was my first venture into research in African musical elements. Did you already think of yourself as a composer at that time? You know, no, no. At the, I went to university in Nigeria. At the university, as an engineering student, by the way, uh, for some reason, you know, I, I got discovered by the, the university orchestra and, and musical ensemble. So I was conducting that, and um, it just happened that conducting was a first love. I love conducting different stuff. And then again, the repertoire was completely European and some folk songs that were usually written, you know, following European, usual Western conventions, you know. So composing started about them because I would write short pieces for, you know, piano, two violin, piano voice, you know, employing different styles of composition. So it started at the university in Nigeria as an engineering student <laughs> conducting the University Music Ensemble. Well, last summer, you took me along with you on a digital journey as you organized an international celebration for what would have been the 100th birthday of your mentor yeah. and the leading composer and ethnomusicologist of African art music, Professor Kwabene Nketiah, who died at the age of 97 in 2019. 
what were some of the lessons about African art music that you gained for him that really had the most profound effect on your compositions? Uh, many, I mean, many, too many to count or list, really, you know, because uh, before me, and to my knowledge, I should add, only Professor Kwabenenkechia and uh, Francis Kwabenenkechia uh, for English-speaking parts of Africa, and then Francis Baby, Cameroonian musicologist for French-speaking parts of Africa. I think just those two individuals, to my knowledge, really travel around Africa to really listen to what's going on at festivals, at rituals, at ceremonies. And uh, they began to either talk about how music practitioners do their craft around Africa. I think I should add one name. In the southern part of Africa, there was also Mohapelua. A lot of the South African songs that are popular today, they can be attributed to Mohapelua, who was originally from uh, Lesotho. So Africa had these three, you know, <laughs> I used to like to call them nomadic travelers, you know, uh, Nketiah for Ghana, Francis Baby for Francophone Africa, and Moapeloa in Lesotho for Southern Africa. You know, so what interested me, attracted me to these, I call them bards, is uh, what they were pointing us to, the unique traditions that are overlooked, you know, in different parts of Africa. And those unique traditions you find, uh, as I said, the rituals, the ceremonies, the, the festivals, the, the, the dances and songs at the marketplaces by the women, you know, the song and chants at the wrestles, at the wrestling festivals and so forth. I mean, the harmonic compass of instruments like the Kora 21 string or Seperwa 7, 8 strings from Ghana, you know, and Inanga from Burundi. So there are a lot of different instruments uh, in across Africa that these legends were pointing younger generations to. But a lot of us, a lot of our younger, that's my generation, uh, didn't pay them any attention because everybody was just so captivated by the Handel, Mozart, Beethoven, wanted to sound like, you know. So these were the things that attracted me to these legends and they still to this day. Well, this next week, you are going to be here in Columbia to work with young musicians at the Mizzou School of New Music to help them understand a little bit more about African rhythms and syncopations in your own music. And so you're going to be working with, uh, they're going to be working on two of your compositions, Warrior Dance and Nubian Dances. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about those works. Nubian Dances, uh, I think uh, the series was... Uh, started with a commission from the Maverick Ensemble from Chicago uh, years back, was it 2012, you know, so this was the first one, and um, it's a piece for a mixed instrumentation, and um, I basically was inspired by just wonderful uh, bard with me, narrative uh, conversation or traditions from 
North and West Africa into uh, Southern North Africa region, you know. So those were the influences that uh, created Nubian dances, number one. And then I think Nubian dances number two was commissioned by some UN organization. I think it's a UNESCO-sponsored program, and it was premiered far away in Malta. But all the Nubian dances, like I said, are inspired by Northern African and uh, Southern Northern African region. And the warrior dance? The warrior dance. The warrior dance is about my father's people, you know. And the warrior dance is, uh, is about an Urobo festival. My father's tribal people are called the Urobos, U-R-H-O-B-O. The Urobos are known to have this uh, festivals commemorating a great harvest and uh, they would normally reenact warrior dances from you know ancient traditions and there'll be machetes clanging there'll be big <laughs> uh, wind instrument horns and a lot of ululations and so those were the things that collectively inspired the warrior dances you know from festivals and what makes them so fiendishly difficult to play? <laughs> it's very difficult uh, when you hear it, but there's a structure to the madness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I dedicated the work to Maestro Paul Freeman, who was uh, the conductor of the Chicago Symphony Theater, you know. And uh, one of the things I told him that I'm always fascinated by the machete dances of my father's people. It sounds difficult, but there is a pattern, some order to the madness. Well, let's take a little listen to a short clip from one of Fredo's warrior dances, played here by the Intercultural Music Initiative's Woodwind Quintet. Thank you. 
just a short clip of Fred Onovo's work his Warrior Dances. The first of two concerts featuring the music of Fred Onovarisworki will be performed by the Columbia Civic Orchestra and conducted by Stefan Freund at the Missouri Theatre on Saturday, February the 26th at 7.30 and will also include music by Chevalier de Saint-Georges and Florence Price. And the second concert will be performed by the Mizzou New Music Ensemble in the Crow Recital Hall at the Sinkerfeld Music Centre on Sunday, February the 27th at 7.30. And this concert will also be streamed live. And if you are in St. Louis or fancy a road trip from mid-Missouri this coming weekend, the Intercultural Music Initiative will be performing their annual Black History Month concert, Classical Music Reimagined, Chamber Music by BIPOC Composers. And that's this Sunday at the Maryville University Auditorium, kicking off at 2.30pm with a pre-concert Q&A and a short film by Titus Underwood called A Tale of Two Tales. And Titus will also be performing in the concert, he's an Emmy award-winning producer and principal oboist of the Nashville Symphony Orchestra, along with pianist Artina McCain. All the concerts are free and open to the public. Fredo, always a delight and it always flies by too quickly. I hope we can catch up again soon. Very soon, before you know it. Thank you, DMD. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, musician Begonia, Artists Askia Bilal and Carrie Elliott and composer Fred Onoveraswalki. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri.